Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. This is Laurie Forner, and we are going to change things up a little bit. So I'm going to talk about what we're going to get into today, and then the intro will come in, and then we'll get into the interview just to keep everybody on their toes for 2021. So we're talking about the surgical correction for diastasis rectus abdominis in women, and we're discussing with physiotherapist Liz Lush, who I'll give you a little bit more about her bio in a minute. But I love this because it's a physiotherapist coming from the clinical aspect, but also as a patient perspective. So we're not going to talk about the conservative management of diastasis today. We're going to focus more on the surgical management. So diastasis, which is called DRA, DRAM, DRAM, depending on where you're from, it's simply the separation of the two rectus abdominal muscles and the thinning or separation of the linea alba. So your rectus abdominis are those kind of six-pack muscles that run down at the front that are underneath a layer of fat and a layer of skin. There isn't necessarily a cutoff of what is bad or dysfunctional or how much separation will require surgery. Some research will say more than five centimeters in certain positions is dictated as severe diastasis and there's other cutoffs. But really aside from the amount of space between the muscles, the focus over the last many years has been less on the distance and more on the tension through the center where the linea alba and that space between the muscles is. That sometimes people will have a really large separation um, and they actually can create pretty good tension underneath or some people can have a smaller separation but they really have nothing in the middle. We know all women will have some amount of separation during pregnancy. That is the area that needs to lengthen and grow in order to accommodate the size of a baby. Potentially, a third of women will still have separation 12 months later after having a baby. Um, But there's a lot of controversy around what exercises women should and shouldn't do which isn't the focus for today. So we're not going to talk about the conservative management. Some women will ultimately want or need surgery for various reasons. For example, hernias, aesthetic, functional, psychological, which are all valid. So I reached out to Liz Lush to share her story. So she is a physiotherapist and a clinical lead at Mummy & Co. Physiotherapy and Fitness here in Brisbane. She's a childbirth educator and tutor for physiotherapy students, and she's a mom of four children. And she tells us a lot about her background and her story in here, which I really loved. In addition to treating women with diastasis for years, she herself had a large diastasis, including a ventral hernia, and she recently had surgery to correct it. And at the time of recording this, she was, I think, 21 days post-op. So I asked her to come on the podcast, share her journey of surgically correcting diastasis, which is very cool from the perspective, like I said earlier, of both a clinician and a patient. So I hope you enjoy the insight and our chat. This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, 
a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun long road to a PhD where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thank you so much for joining me on the Pelvic Health Podcast to tell me all about your journey and your story with surgery for diastasis. So please yeah. tell me, because I know all I know is that, you know, you're a physio. How'd you yeah. get to here? I was really, really inspired as a student on my women's health prac at the Royal Women's in Sydney. I just think of the women as formidable. You know, they were physios of the 70s who'd had to fight for women's health to even be a thing. And they were so passionate And I also saw a birth that just, you know, I was skipping down Oxford Street in Paddington afterwards, just so inspired. Um, I discovered that the overactive bladder I had had all through um, teenage years, childhood and teenage years, I could change and I changed it. And, you know, those those things were really influential. Um, And I think I was just super, super rich in opportunities. Like I graduated in 98 when, I mean, 97, when there were, you know, there wasn't many physios really compared to jobs and there was hardly anyone in women's health. And I had the opportunity to work at a little regional hospital and so to do a women's health prac or placement and, um, you know, two patients just um, speared me. Uh, One was just a really, really precise Egyptian man who was so, such an intelligent, incredible man who had fecal incontinence and it just, it floored me, the significance of who we could serve. And um, and also on the complete other end of a spectrum was a woman who sort of jaunted back in after six weeks and had had her first orgasm and was, was you know, thrilled and, you know, just young little physio, so excited. And at the same time, um, I had the opportunity at Westmead Hospital to, to train with the childbirth education team um, and that was just the richest experience, Laurie. In Sydney, the midwives and physios are all in together. It's this rich collaborative environment. You're just pushing each other and and filling each other's laps with materials to equip each other and, you know, regular in-services with all the anaesthetists and gynies and obs and just, it's great. But also my early years in private practice were really rich in who I worked for. It was definitely hard to move to Queensland, but, you know, you eventually find your feet in some small way. And, you know, the Royal Brisbane was certainly amazing. There's certainly a place of excellence, um, but it's just been a joy and delight to work for for Lisa. I mean, she's just a little pocket rocket. And yeah, I think my background as a physio is just to be chock full of people who have really um, either inspired me or rounded out my, my view of people and how to look at them and enjoy them. I don't know if it's like this in other states, but there seems to be a divide here between musk physios and pelvic floor physios and women's health. And slowly it's mm. it's more being intertwined, which really it should be because, you know, we are whole people. Um, did yeah. you, because you kind of come from, you know, both of those backgrounds and putting everything together, what's been your experience with treating women who have diastasis? 
Yes, and I, uh, that's a great question. And I think, you know, initially when you're young, you go with what people have told you. And I went on women's health courses. And yes, I was, went on MUSC courses, but it wasn't addressed in those specifically. Um, and then when you have hospital-based training, you know, you're so um, sort of set, preset mode of, yep, that's how we do things. Um, and so I think, you know, back in the in the late 90s, it was very much similar to the Tupler method. And, you know, you followed that approach of, of a supported crunch and small crunches. And, and then, you know, the TA craze came in uh, and it was all about transverses. Um, and yeah, but and I think going through it myself at the same time then quickly makes you suspicious of anything that's a craze because you go, but that doesn't add up to what happens in my body. Um, so that, that was interesting. I, I loved, I did a big review of the research uh, maybe five years ago now. And my favorite thing was this, um, this survey that they did in the States of all these physios. And what are you actually doing? You know, what are you doing when it comes to, to DRAM rehab? And um, I, this is very paraphrased, but the conclusion was basically physios are very opinionated, um, very diverse in their treatment, and they don't actually have any RCTs to back up what they're doing. And I just thought, isn't that the truth? We just, we can be so opinionated and this is the way to do it. So I think for me, having that lived experience of your diastasis can change from day to day in how wide it is and how unstable it is. I did manage to do a significant L5 injury as a first year out catching a falling stroke patient. And so there was always a little friendly reminder from, you know, a few ridiculous symptoms. Um, if I'd sort of barged ahead in an approach that wasn't so awesome. Um, and that really helped me to know it, it isn't actually one size fits all. You really need to look at what's in front of you. Um, not just the diastasis in front of you, but look at the patterning of your whole body and, um, and treat how you're going that day as well. Don't expect that the exercises that are great today are necessarily going to be great tomorrow. So there are a couple of things I picked up early on. Um, but I think I was also couched in such a reassuring environment that that's very different to the lived experience for a lot of women where, you know, people have made a lot of money terrifying other women about how significant a problem it is. And, and it is very unsettling to have your appearance changed so much, especially when there's so much emphasis on how you look for your sexualness as a person. Um, and so, you know, I think I, I was surrounded by physios and so I was very reassured about it. I had a lot of knowledge about how to manage it myself. I wasn't distressed about my back. I had an uncle who's a plastic surgeon. And, you know, there's always that sense of cushioning around this problem to not stress too much. I had a husband who didn't care how my stomach looked, you know, um, so I, I think I don't feel like my experience necessarily speaks for how distressing it could be for a lot of women. We'll get into the surgery yes. that you have now had and how early you are post-surgery. Um, but yeah, how long okay. have you had it and what kind of, you know, specific treatment did you try to do and where, at what point did you go, this is not enough? My eldest is 19. And I had a mild diastasis after her, but the majority of my connective tissue failure was in the skin. Um, but then very early in my second pregnancy in 2003, four, um, I noticed that there was obviously a much more significant separation. Um, and I'd actually, we'd moved up to Queensland by then. And um, I had beautiful Marion Donnelly looking after me at the Royal. Oh my goodness, that woman, uh, so gorgeous. And even she assessing me possibly planted the seed that that we were looking at something that would require surgery ultimately to fix. And I mean, 
post immediately post birth of my second, my separation was wider than two full hands. Um, and probably my first clue was that it, that it was more than just a, a separation, which is actually just a widening, that it was actually more like a, a hernia, was that I couldn't breathe very well until the tubi grip went on. So my diaphragmatic function was really poor. Um, and that, that did improve very quickly with tubi grip and with some of the simple things that we still often give as advice, you know, don't, don't do huge reaching, don't, don't do huge heavy lifting. Um, and posture yourself well while you're looking after and feeding your baby. So that that definitely helped. Um, but I think I had to see my uncle, who's the plastic surgeon, for a skin lesion question mark fairly soon after the birth of my second, like within the first six to nine months, I'd say. And I mean, I'd been doing exercises typical to what we'd give in the hospital. So TA activation, so transverse abdominis activation, combine it with crunches just little crunches, supported crunches, all of those things. And, you know, it meant I had a, a separation that sort of varied between five and wider than that centimetres. Um, but, yeah, I was in visiting my uncle who happened to have a visiting surgeon from the States and I was on the table and was like, oh, come have a look at Lizzie. You don't see them this bad very often. Um, so <laughs> I, I did know fairly early on it was going to be a tricky one to 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 resolve myself. But I, I think... I did just have that mindset of I'll just manage it until surgery is realistic. So um, that was going to be after my third and then uh, God saw fit to bless us with a, a fourth. <laughs> um, and then after his birth, he just had so many behavioural and health challenges that it was not possible to consider surgery for many years um, because I knew the recovery would be significant. And so by the time it was, you know, 2013, 14, um, so we're now nearly 10 years after when I knew I had a significant separation, um, he, we had a diagnosis for him, we had things in place, and Medicare took abdominoplasty off the list. So it was just this terrible, like, ah, this is when I was going to, to get it done. And um, anyway, so... A lot of Pilates incidentally later through my work with gorgeous Lisa, um, it really it really solidified that doing abdominal work certainly increased the strength of my other muscles, but I just would keep hitting a ceiling, especially if I ever added speed to my exercise. So any anything speed related, um, I didn't really try pushing the ceiling on very heavy resistance weights. So I know that's a, a little different than, than your journey. Um, but yeah, as soon as I start to try and pick up the speed of, of, you know, like interval training, it would, I, I would, I'd get problems, but probably the biggest problem was I was actually, if I, you know, going from down dog to, to plank, um, I would herniate my bowels through the, the space. And then if my rectus was activating sufficiently, I would, do a transient strangulation of them, which, you know, is really hard to keep you cool teaching in class while you're, <laughs> you're squeezing off your bowels. Yeah, so it just was becoming more regular. Uh, so I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to, you know, fork out 13 grand to get this abdominoplasty done because this is just not functional and and um, Medicare keep rejecting the um, fantastic submissions. I had a look over the last one and I thought it was really good. Um, anyway. I, yeah, so I went 
my uncle recommended a really lovely guy, Dr. Dr. Bailey, and, and he explained to me that, yeah, while abdominoplasty is still off the Medicare list, you know, a, a, just that typical ventral hernia repair, you know, it's just an incision down the middle isn't like, and um, certainly I have the symptoms of a hernia, which in surgery, it was proven I most certainly did cut open the skin. There was the bowel. He said to me, you know, the downside is you'll have a big incision down the front of your tummy. Also the, the uh, material they use for closing the muscles can feel a bit stiff. So it can feel a bit rigid. Like you've got to pull up your front. Tell me what, um, because I find that a lot of women, um, uh, will they might decide that they want to have surgery because of an aesthetic issue that either right. again the skin yeah. tissue um, or because things you know at rest everything sits open the abdominal um, cavity the abdominal contents sit in the abdomen when you're at rest so then it makes it look like you're pregnant um, whereas you know, uh, the hernia that you're talking about, I'm assuming is not like a small umbilical hernia, like you're talking about strangulation. So what, what is wrong with strangulation to start with? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's not a true strangulation where it's entrapped. And then you've got, um, you know, a lack of blood supply going to the area of bowel that's moved through a small space um, that's then being squeezed. And, you know, that, that can become potentially dangerous as that lack of blood supply leads to death of those tissues or necrosis. And, you know, those are then leached back into your, your whole system. Um, so I would falsely create a small space. So I have a huge space, <laughs> a huge hernia, or I did. Um, but because I'd built up my rectus so much in strength, as I would change position, with with my body forward my rectus would come together you know and you think closing the gap is awesome not so much when the bowel's right there so and then of course as soon as there's a strong pain what does your body react with tension even though you're telling yourself hey chill um and so you've got these muscles clamping down on this bowel that's moved through the space the other time it would always get me was um so it's racing between get to get changed after a class and you know you're bending over and so the tummy contents would come through the gap and then effort to try and pull up um or i think pulling off my src my long src pants <laughs> so awesome for holding it in and then that minute i peel it down out would come the the intestines um and then I'd squeeze them off. So yeah, it's it's a problem, uh, it, particularly when there's a small space, especially in the fascia. So most, as you know, most women with the diastasis, it's actually just an extreme thinning or a moderate thinning of that that connective tissue between the muscles, and it can become quite wide. Um, and if you get little holes in that connective tissue, and the bowel moves through that and entraps it, it's much harder for the bowel to then move back in, and and that's much more dangerous. So um, the in the sort of transient, I'll call them mild in, entrapments, were not life-threatening for me at all. Um, but they were very painful and not very practical um, and definitely part of my motivation to want to have an operation. Um, but I think in equal measure, that desire to be able to push the ceiling on training and to have more strength for my back um, was the other desire that totally out, outweighed wanting to have a low, small, invisible incision. Like for me to have a stable structure of, of a, you know, no break in the chain in, in the front of my trunk um, completely outweighed the desire for invisible incision. Does that answer the question a bit more? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's not a it's not an easy decision, especially when you know the type of um, re not not rehab, but the type of um, trauma that's involved with the surgery and then the rehab yes. afterwards. So you looked into it for I'm assuming quite a while. Um, and finding the right surgeon and working out because um, you said you'd had your you'd had a family member kind of suggest a really good surgeon. Did you ask them yes. lots of questions when you were trying to work out what was going to happen and whether or not you do it? Yeah, I I think I just didn't realize how I, I hadn't realized the anterior repair would be an option, you know, and I don't know why. I just always focused on abdominoplasty and all my research had been about abdominoplasty and rehab from that. Um, and in actual fact, while you do get a larger scar, the rehab from the anterior hernia repair is much less painful. You're not pulling the muscles down. You're not pulling skin down. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are. I know how important modifications to risk factors are. And I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence. But I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I'm honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. Can you explain the difference between the abdominoplasty and the yes. anterior yes. repair? Yeah, sure. So the anterior repair is just what you'd imagine it'd be. Someone cuts you down the middle. Um, and so I actually I currently have a 30 centimetre long, very well healing wound. Oh. <laughs> um but, you know, ironically, it's less painful. I know, and I know that it is just from all my patients who've had abdominoplasty and um, the abdominoplasty, they make an, a beautiful, neat, low incision, um, like, like a small Caesar scar, um, or sometimes it's similar size, actually. And they are going up from there to pull your muscles together and use whatever, there's several options they use to bring the muscles together and to fixate that. Um, if, that then they're dealing with the excess skin and what they do is they're, they're pulling it down and cutting off all the excess. So, and everything is getting fixed down near that Caesar, Caesar scar spot. So just above your, your pubic bone. Um, and so, and that is a lot of force being pulled down to a low point. And so I, I'm sure you've seen this in, in your rehab with women after abdominoplasty, it's really hard for them to straighten up. It's hard for them to then lift their arms. Um, whereas I, I mean, it's pretty minimal 
by comparison for me. Um, yeah, despite how huge the wound is. <laughs> so can they not do what they did to you with the low incision? Like why did they have to do the midline incision with the 30 centimeters rather than the little, well, it's not little C-section hip to hip where you then, again, like you said, take the skin, like you have a t-shirt and pull it all the way down to stitch it together. Yes. What did they just have to access more? Um, yeah. So one is from the Medicare perspective. So it is considered an aesthetic procedure or a plastics procedure to go for the abdominoplasty wound. And it's only not considered um, that if you meet certain criteria, you know, one of which is being overweight and having an overhang where there's wound issues underneath that. Um, so I think the delicious word is separating skin conditions. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the, the central, the central incision is because then it's a, a hernia repair, but also it, it did enable him to have a little bit more leeway in dealing with the skin in a genuine way by having the longer incision. So a hernia repair is not meant to include excision of skin. Um, but obviously when you cut skin, you've got to bring it together. So um, I just happened to have a long cut. So I had a lot of skin to bring together, which, you know, for me, it's interesting about the aesthetics. Like I, I mean, I do look, I joke to you in, in the text message, it feel, I feel a bit Frankenstein-ish, um, but it actually, it just feels lovely to have this firm front. And, um, you know, I just think my body map in my brain is like, it's like it's coming alive again with that part of my body instead of that disconnect. And, you know, that sense of even just that, that uh, sexual sense of my body of I just, it's almost like, yep, that's, that's the line down the middle. That's where I meet. And, um, it's just, it's lovely. I'm really surprised. And, you know, it's only going to get better from here in terms of how visible the scar is. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't anticipate that. You know, I thought it would be a very aesthetic downside, but instead my body sense and my sense of feeling lovelier in my stomach is, is definitely increased. How many days post-op are you now? This is day 21. So yeah, I had the operation three weeks ago. Is that right? So you're not yeah, on like opioid medication that's making you feel that way still? <laughs> I didn't have any, any opioids. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I've always loved working with pain. Um, yeah. So I, the pain wasn't the scariest element for me either. Did they, yeah. so did you have mesh for the hernia repair or what did they do inside? No. Do you know what I should have done? I should have contacted him before I had the interview with you to remember the name of this newer product. It's it's essentially, it's like spiky Velcro on a strip. I should hunt that up and, and put it in the comments. Um, I, I have my consult with him on Friday, so I can ask him to remind me. So it's- Spiky Velcro so he sounds good the, though. It does. Yeah. It feels good. Like, so he over, he over, um, draws the muscles together I don't know why I'm using my hands when this is a, a podcast I'm sorry but it helps me <laughs> um, so it's okay <laughs> okay so over over draws the muscle together and then the strip of of the of the band with the spikes in it goes and and holds those two together and and you know your cells can then flourish around those spikes and 
and start to thicken and grow around it. So no stitches in the abdominal muscles? No. So that was his decision. Mm. So he described to me the three most common ways of bringing it together. And one of my issues is I have very thin skin and very minimal fat under my skin in my tummy. That's just not where I carry my fat. Um, you know, my butt makes sure I'm a bit more Beyonce. And, and so he just said, the problem for you is if I do a stitch as you know, and you know, a lot of people want that, but you'll have, even if I do my best job and he's an excellent hand surgeon, by the way, even if I do my best job, there will be a little something that you can always feel and you will worry away with your finger. You won't be able to stop yourself. And so he's obviously had experience like that in the past with someone with very thin skin. Um, so uh, probably thin skinned is a, is a, is a never a compliment in our country, but anyway. <laughs> um, the, does the Velcro yeah, dissolve or does it stay there? Well, I know the Velcro. Will we'll bunny ears ooh. Velcro? Yeah, bunny ears Velcro. Um, I'll, I need to double check that. Certainly the, the skin stitches I've got dissolve. Um, I, I, I'm going to assume so because he said to me it will feel like I have a pole. It could feel like I have a pole up my front for about 18 months. But it doesn't. The only place I really feel it is just under my xiphoid, so just under the base of my breastbone. I'll feel like, oh, yeah, there's something there. Um, but otherwise, it just I just feel together. Yeah, which is nice. Which has been 20 years, technically, that you may yes, not have felt that I way. <sighs> yeah, and, you know, he's he's done his best to create me a new little belly button, which is very sweet little cherry on the cake. So what? how is rehab, kind of the initial rehab in the hospital to then... I mean, it's only been three weeks, but what have you been able to do? What, oh, sorry, what did you have to start with when you were at the hospital? Yeah, so the pretty typical, just acute post-op in terms of breathing exercises and early mobility. So I chose to not have a catheter and to mobilize early instead. Um, and he was happy with that um, and preferred that. Um, so it was just, it was those sorts of things Um you know, so just making sure I was lying flat or sitting up very neatly um, and then just little walks. Probably I was a bit too keen day one. No physio has ever done that right um, and went for a few too many walks. And so I could feel that um, it's that the, the problem with surgery pain, right, is it's usually a delay. So, you know, you know, seizures are like that. You know, you get that that day 10 kind of rush of oh, I can, I'll be fine. And then that night you have a whole wall of regret. Um, so definitely it has been like that, but, but, you know, just trying to do as much resting, deep breathing, you know, ankle, ankle pumping, um, and then little walks, not too many. And then by day three, I was allowed a shower. I've got a waterproof dressing on. And so it was actually very minimal fuss and I was home. So I was home by by day three and, and able to have a shower at home and it's just wearing a binder that compresses and it compresses my stitches and also um, just tries to minimize my activation of my core um, and that's that's probably for me one of the harder things um, I think the two things I find hard is one is that false sense of oh I'm fine it'll be okay just to do that and then you know three hours later you're like oh you idiot um, so definitely trying to stick to the rules. And it was very good having a one-week post-surgery. It was a, a nine-day nine post-surgery consult with the surgeon and the nurse who, you know, read the right act in terms of, you know, slow down, slow down. Um, 
and I, I loved what the nurse said. She said, I spend so much of my time telling people that they really just can't do it for those first um, six weeks. So um, that was a good reminder. Um, so that I think the hardest part of rehab hasn't been what to do. It's been what to not do. Um, and, and it's really hard to not use your core. Like you, you use it for everything. Um, so, yeah, it's been that's been a bit tricky. But it's basically just been lots of gentle movements. So just move around the house and try and stop yourself from doing housework and go for a little walk outside. So I've coped with that by reading a lot. So doing a lot of reading and writing and um, all the, you know, admin type stuff I've never been able to get to at work. So it's three weeks. And in your mind, before you had surgery, one thing was getting back into, you know, being able to do physical function. So where do you get to kind of go from here? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I'll get to ask more specific weight questions this Friday of the surgeon. Um, but he said he's happy for gentle Pilates-style exercise at four weeks. Um, so, you know, you think of your simple bird dogs, just things that I guess are great for me because I'm often working with women not, not long postnatal or not long post-surgery where you just, you know, how to bridge and bird dog. Um so that will be at the four weeks. In terms of the specific weight I'm allowed to lift, I'm, I'm interested to know that myself. He, his advice in these early weeks was you'll know. Um, and certainly, you know, if I lift something that's more than three or four kilos, I am aware of the pull on the center line of my stitches um, pulling out at the waist. And that's, that's not very heavy. Um, so that's been a bit frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's part of what I signed up for. So I'm trying to remind myself of that. Um, and then it should be able to, from six weeks is when his words were appreciable load. So he actually has a daughter who's a physio. And so he said, you were definitely not to, allowed to do any musculoskeletal patients until six weeks. Um, and it's just that force um, of manual therapy. So it's quite restrictive, actually. It's a long time. From six weeks, he's happy for me to start gradually increasing the the Pilates he's happy for me to do resistance training gradually increasing those weights so I'm really excited for that is there anything that you won't be allowed to do ever so I'm I'm interested to find out from what he said to me once you know you've got past that acute healing stage and you start to gradually increase loading the sky is truly the limit in terms of abdominal load so that's what's really excited me Yeah, I think from the patients that I've seen in the past, knowing that they've all had different surgeries, um, most surgeons have just been like, no, once you're through that, the sky's the limit, you do what you want, you're not restricted or limited to do anything. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's thrilling for me. What is the, so what's the activity of choice that you want to get back to that you're like, I cannot wait to do this. It's been so long and this is where I want to head. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, I guess the loves and the needs are slightly separate there. So I can feel um, as, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but as the forties progress, you're like, yes, I'm going towards those years where, I need to make sure I'm doing heavier resistance training. It's switching more into bone health, but my back is asking for that. And so I really want to be able to, to do that. I, I want to be able to do um, speedy things with the, 
with a medicine ball and, and not regret it, um, those sorts of things. But my real exercise love was back when, back before Les Mills stole the radio show and um, dance uh, step aerobics used to be dance step sometimes in some places. I don't know if you ever used to, did you see the dance step aerobics? I used to love that. I don't think so. my world's so. best at- Jane Fonda? <sighs> Um, no, so um, there's a guy actually who I follow on YouTube. He does this. He does some. There's a few of them around, and um, uh, yeah, I, I love. I, I'm totally off topic here, but yeah, I just love the dance step. So it's like a step class, but it's you're dancing, and it's not just a sort of those set number of moves like in a Les Mills, and you're constantly having to watch the instructor as they spin around and come around the step and jump over and. And I, I loved that because one of the problems for me is with, you know, refreshing and having true rest and, you know, refilling the jug um, is the mind, like trying to get the mind um, to do what it should do with mindfulness. And when I'm exercising, I just cannot stop thinking. But if I'm doing dance step, I cannot do anything but watch that instructor and fly over that step. And so I would get to the end of a class and just feel wrung out and in every way, brain wrung out, body wrung out. I'd love it. So... <laughs> That is amazing. I'm hoping I, to do that. That is brilliant. I've had that conversation with one of my other friends who loves um, like the 12 round. Uh, they, that's like a high intensity oh, yes. interval training. And I, we both said, you know, yes. we've done mindfulness. I love headspace. I love time for that. But the main times where I really don't think because I can't think is when I'm doing something that's making me huff and puff, especially with load so that I don't drop it on my head, that you have to think about that mindfulness in that moment. Um, So that is, I can imagine, God, I would not be coordinated enough to do a dance step aerobics class. Oh, no way. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't mean I'm good at it, but I enjoy it. But um, yeah, I, really, I remember one uh, pelvic pain, male pelvic pain practitioner from the States had, had some phrase like true mindfulness is just that absolute enjoyment of being in your own body. And I just thought, what a great phrase. And that, yes, yeah, so I really relate to what you said about that. You're not even thinking about it. You're just enjoying being in your body and exercising. And yeah, I love that. I mean, and I do, I do do mindfulness as well. And I definitely use that for pain management a lot in the lead up to the surgery and after the surgery, I just, you know, I found it really helpful. Um, yeah. But at, in terms of a, a regular practice, like, like you, I just love that being in your body and enjoying it with exercise is great. Was there anything that worried you or that you were afraid of contemplating this decision? Definitely in terms of how much it took me out of family cares. And so, you know, that is what delayed my surgery for so long. We just, we, we had to, it had to be manageable. And, you know, there was, uh, I mean, the way I, I learned about the true glory of interprofessional collaboration was through that really vulnerable end of, you know, my child being trotted around between psychology and occupational therapy and speech pathology and, you know, and just going from that journey of trying to fix your child to actually no learning, you can't fix, you, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of need there is, is the short, short story. And um, so that was my biggest concern was I, I couldn't have the surgery until it was realistic for my husband and to be able to manage um, four kids is, is crazy. It's, it's that was, that was certainly my biggest concern. And it did play on my mind, um, you know, that any surgery carries a risk of, um, it, you know, 
there's a mortality risk with 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 uh, with surgery and and so for me it had to reach a point where function was really requiring the surgery um, yeah and I mean it absolutely had reached that point for me to put that risk before my family but also you know I I had everything in my favor in terms of being a low risk so you know it, that was that was minimized. One last question, which I didn't write down, <laughs> but how do you yeah, feel, okay. how do you feel like this experience that you have gone through will change your practice with kind of patients from here on or will it change what you've already done? Oh, I've always enjoyed having to live through problems. Like I have falsed my pubic symphysis in my second pregnancy. I, you know, I've had varicosities and evolved varicosities and malprolapse and, you know, all, all those sorts of things definitely give me a perspective of how weird things can feel sometimes how worrying they can feel um I think I think the relief will help me to be able to say it can be better than you think um it you know that's not a prescription but um it has just been so much better than I thought Laurie it's it's been less painful than I thought it feels so much better I've got the long work of rehab ahead of me um, in terms of once I am start allowed to start doing more. But I think um, we just, gosh, isn't it a thing from the last year? We need to hear more hopeful stories um, because there's plenty of stories around that aren't so hopeful. And I just, I've had a lot of different trauma experiences that have informed my practice. And it's so joyful to have a positive, hopeful experience now that informs my practice to go, you know, things can be better than than you think. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I cannot wait to keep following your journey. Um, is it just on Yummy Mummy? Not Yummy Mummy, that's Paula. Sorry, Paula. Um, sorry, Lisa. The, <laughs> they're friends. It's all okay. Um, they are. They're besties. The Mummy and Co. Is, are we just to look for your updates on that Instagram page or are you doing it anywhere else? Yeah, no, I'm not a very good social media person. So, yeah, just the the Mummy & Co is where I've been posting the little updates and, okay. um, yeah, we due to, to do another one this week. I've noticed the big change this week is how flat the sutures look now, which is lovely. Yeah, look, I'll put the link in the show notes because it is really interesting to have a look at that especially when we're talking about these visual scar types with our hands and nobody can see yes. <laughs> um, what we're what we're talking about so they'll be able to go and have a look and follow your journey and um the sky's the limit for you now thank you Laurie and thanks for your interest and delight that's been great <laughs>